Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 28. Hear now God's Word. Jesus said, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Amen. Last Sunday I began a series titled Foundations. As the Apostle Paul addressed the various churches and pastors in his day, and he did so most often topically as pastors and elders consider their congregations just as parents do their children and their households, we try to consider the whole picture and what the current needs are. And so the session has agreed that this series of meals is needed and appropriate. Custom gourmet meals are not what Paul usually served up. Uh, He's, again, addressing the church, and that's what we do as well. He addressed the needs of the church, reproving, rebuking, exhorting with all longsuffering. And it's common for the Scriptures then to return to the same basic themes over and over, the same fundamental doctrines repeated over and over to provide the primary foundation that is essential for Christian living. Everyone builds on something. Foundations are essential. One of the necessary foundation stones for everyone is establishing our ultimate authority. We all have one. You do, I do, we all do. It's only a matter of recognizing and acknowledging what that ultimate authority is. It's one of those inescapable concepts. In other words, we all must answer the questions, who's in charge? Who is the boss? Who is the Lord? Who has the last word for me? If we build our lives and our churches on the Word of God and the teaching, teaching of Jesus then according to what Jesus has told us here, we will have a house that will last, that will endure. Now Jesus makes it clear that this can't simply be hearing the Word only, but rather hearing and doing the Word. It's easy to come and sit, to listen, for others to become critics, others, uh, some even read their Bibles a lot. But if, we, if we're to do what Jesus said, if we're to build upon the rock, then we must also be doers of the word. I've thought about that illustration. I, when I get ready to build something in my shop, I usually, not always, but I usually have a set of plans 
I'm currently working on a project, and I refer to those plans over and over. But if all I ever do is read the plans and admire the pictures of what somebody else has done and admire the, the beauty of the organization and all the pictures that are in the instructions and so forth, and I never actually build, then I've fallen short of what's going on, supposed to go on in a shop. Well, this is our shop. This is the place where God has put us to build something. To build his kingdom, to be built up ourselves, to be part of a building. And so, uh, it's to, to stick with the metaphor of this house, this building that's built upon a rock, storms inevitably come to churches. They come to families. They, storms come to individuals in, in a variety of shapes and forms. You've experienced a few of these, right? It's in these storms where we find out pretty quickly what our foundation is made of and what our ultimate authority is. Where do you go for real solutions? If the Christian faith and the Bible are only there for the sunny days, then frankly it's not worth much. If we look to the government or the world or to the internet or to ourselves to uh, deal with the so-called real world, sometimes people will talk that way about, well, yeah, we go to church and we do this, we do that. But in the real world, uh, over here we have to deal with hard reality. Those, those things that you learn over there are really not sufficient. We need another source. And so if we look to all those, let's be honest. The Bible is not your ultimate authority. It's something less than that. The beginning and foundation, and that's the nature of this series, regarding Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church, was and remains the Bible, the living Word of God. Our church constitution opens with these words. Our chief purpose is to worship and glorify the triune God by proclaiming and obeying His Word as found in the Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments and by observing the sacraments. Then it lists our various standards, our confessions, and so forth. And it goes on, our Constitution, to say, Should any conflict arise between this Constitution... And bylaws and any of the above standards, things like the Westminster Standard, Belgic Confession, the controlling authority for resolution of the conflict shall follow this order. Number one, Scripture. Number two, the above named creeds, confessions, and catechisms. Number three, the Constitution and bylaws. You see, we are first and foremost Christians. We are followers of Jesus. God's Word is our ultimate authority. Let God be found true, but every man a liar. We stack up all the other authorities, all the encyclopedias, all the Google searches. What my my mama told me. Every other authority over here, and then God's Word. And if they're in conflict, God's Word settles it. That's the truth. So this is the issue that must be clearly resolved as a church 
and also for each of us as individual members of the church. Has that been clearly and finally resolved for you? What if you don't like what the Bible says? What if it's politically incorrect? What if it's out of step with the times? May we then pick and choose? Well, if we do, or if you don't, then the Bible, or if you don't, then the Bible is not your ultimate authority. Something else is. This was the fundamental problem in the Garden of Eden, right? When Satan asked Eve, has God said? And then she proceeded to question God's right to determine good and evil, right from wrong. Now this foundational issue is critical for how we will go about answering every question. About family, about church, society, men... Women, children, sexuality, work, money, politics, abortion, creation. We can keep going. In fact, the answer to every question always, always points to our ultimate authority. Whoever has the last word, that is your ultimate authority. That's your God. Now, I want to point out that all views of authority rest on faith, including the so-called scientific view, scientific faith. Now, a word about the Reformers. We're a Reformed church. As a church, we trace our roots back to the Reformation, where some of those foundational issues were recovered and reestablished, The Reformers were very concerned about the ultimate authority of Scripture. It wasn't the Pope or the church councils or tradition or personal ideas and feelings that were ultimate. Likewise, God's Word has been set aside and replaced by the spirit of our age, a mix of rationalism and mysticism and postmodernism and a host of other isms. The world is full of alternative, ultimate authorities. It's also full of idols. Other sources of authority can be be important, but Scripture authority was and is ultimate and sufficient. Do we need to add something to Scripture? Psalm 19 compares first, in the early verses, God's natural revelation with his written revelation and concludes with the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. And then it goes on in verse 7, the law of the Lord, the written word of God, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statute of the Lord is right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. More 
Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. In Matthew 4, Jesus uses the Bible to overcome temptation, quoting Scripture to Satan. And in 2 Timothy 3, Paul instructs Timothy on how the Scriptures make us wise unto salvation, even from the time we were nursing babies. And he goes on to say it also is sufficient to equip us for every good work. Where is a person to find the answer to the ultimate question, how can a sinner become right with God or just with God? Are we going to discover it on our own? Do we get to devise our own plan of justification? The the question of ultimate authority has to be answered first. Again, other questions before us. Whom shall I marry? How shall we worship? worship? How do I love my neighbor? How shall I spend my time and money? God, tell me. You tell me and I'll do it. Not my will, but your will be done. How shall I train and discipline my children? How may I express my sexuality? And a thousand other questions. The most basic question has to be answered first. Has God revealed Himself fully in Scripture? If you believe the Scriptures are the inerrant, full revelation of God's will to man, then you'll submit to them, whether you like what they tell you or not, and I often don't, and then we come to love them. If you believe in some lesser view of Scripture, then you will bring them into submission to your own reason, and you'll accept what you like and reject what doesn't please you. The Bible is the very word of the living God. It's written in the style of individual writers who, through the superintendence of the Holy Spirit, were kept free from all errors. And by God's providential direction, he produced literature that communicated what he wanted to say through these men. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete or mature or perfect, thoroughly equipped for every good work. What else do you need? This is a God-breathed book. God expired rather than inspired. This is the first time the word is used in any Greek literature. Paul apparently coins a term here. This isn't the inspiration we talk about when we see someone who was inspired by a beautiful sunset to paint a picture. Rather, this is the God-expired word, delivered. If this is true, if this is true, then it changes everything. This, uh, excuse me, the counsel of this book, then is not even remotely like that of any other book. It's in a class all by itself. The Word of God makes exclusive claims. And when we dilute the Word of God with the speculations of men, 
we weaken the power of the gospel witness. Because it's God's Word, it has the following characteristics. It's infallible. It's not misleading, nor is it being misled. It is safe and reliable. It is inerrant, free from all falsehood or mistake. It is entirely true and trustworthy in all of its assertions. It is authoritative due to the fact that the Scriptures are God-expired, infallible, and inerrant. They are therefore authoritative and binding on all men in all times and in all circumstances. They're comprehensive. Isaiah 8.20, If they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no light. So as we reflect upon the crucial foundation of our church, this crucial foundation of our church, a mature understanding and use of the Word of God is essential to our survival and our ability to withstand the onslaughts of the world and the devil. This is true for us as a church, and this is true for our families and individuals. It is possible to have the Bible, but to fail then to know it and to stand on it. In other words, we can be immature. The writer of Hebrews describes immature Christians this way. Hebrews 5, 12 through 14. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the Bible, the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So in Hebrews 5, I believe Paul wrote Hebrews, Paul begins to give us an introduction to the nature of Christ's priesthood and intercession for us. Pretty critical doctrine, right? Can you understand that? Can you explain that doctrine? And as he begins to explain this important doctrine, he realizes that much of his audience isn't ready to follow his argument. He seems to have the frustration I hear from many pastors concerning the spiritual immaturity of those he's trying to instruct. So Paul diverts his discussion to address this perpetual problem in the church, and he then rebukes them for their lack of progress as a parent might rebuke a child who is not living up to their potential. You like me, I heard that more than once in my early years of education. You know, he's bright, but he's not living up to his potential. Well, are you living up to your potential? So Paul then, uh, no, he, 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 uh, as a result, he rebukes them. And it's no wonder then that the apostle had many who complained against him. But he does his job calling them to better things. The goal and direction of Christian living is to grow up, to mature. Just because you've been a Christian for many years doesn't mean you're mature. Just because you're smart doesn't mean you're wise. 
I heard this story. You might be like the person who'd been a teacher for 25 years. I think I've mentioned this before. When she heard about a job that would mean a promotion, she applied for the position. However, some who had been teaching for only someone who had been only teaching for one year was hired instead. She went to the principal and asked why. The principal responded, "I'm sorry, but you haven't had 25 years of experience as you claim." You've had only one year's experience 25 times. During that whole time, the teacher had not improved. So it might, so it might be with many Christians, they have, haven't grown but simply repeated the first year of spiritual life many times. The lack of spiritual growth, brothers and sisters, is a dangerous thing. For there are blessings to be enjoyed in Christ that only the mature Christian can truly understand and appreciate. If you remain spiritually immature, you can't come to fully appreciate your standing and your blessings that you have in Christ. Deprived of a greater understanding, guess what? You are more susceptible to all kinds of trouble. The longing for the way it was when I was first converted can be a subtle snare. If by that you're referring to your first love, then that's good. But too often it means that you long for the days before everything was so complicated. This kind of doctrinal infantilism pervades the church today, and it should be soundly rejected. Again, this is the same kind of problem in the book of Hebrews. Paul had much to say about Christ as our high priest, which is crucial to being able to live a happy and productive Christian life, but the spiritual immaturity of his readers made it difficult. And so he thought it was necessary, again, to temporarily digress from his discussion in verses 11 through 14, and he begins by rebuking his readers for being dull when they should have been sharp. He rebukes them for not being able to teach. He rebukes them for not needing. Uh, for, he, rebu- he rebukes them for needing to be taught the basics, and he rebukes them for needing milk and not solid food. Now, those in this condition are babies, and he says it's because they're unskilled in the word of righteousness. They don't know their Bible. This prevented him from continuing with the argument for the moment. And while the material he had to share with them was, he said, hard to explain, it wasn't so much the difficulty of the material itself as it was their inability to receive it. Let me just pause a minute. Rhetorical question. When's the last time you read a theological book? Something that would help you understand the Bible better. A topic, a book of the Bible, to really dig deeper. Well, if that's really distant for you, then I want to urge you, instead of just feeling bad this morning, that's not my goal, uh, that's the Holy Spirit's work to convict us, and I want to end in a real positive note, but I want to say you can do something really simply about that. If you don't know what to get, ask. I'd be happy to make some suggestions. Read a book. Think. Grow. It's great. It feels wonderful see progress being made. 
You can do that. It's, it's doable. So, while the material, uh, they had become dull of hearing, uh, that may imply regression. The Greek word here is nothros. Sounds to me like the word, our word, no thrust, or words, which is close to its literal meaning. At one time, they were not dull of hearing. They had grown dull of hearing. They may, they may at one time been like the Bereans who received the word with all eagerness and readiness of heart. Indeed, most Christians are truly, truly sharp in their listening at first. They're excited about what they're learning. They listen with great readiness and spiritual growth occurs. But it's not uncommon for apathy to set in at making people dull of hearing. And then we regress. Part of why I'm preaching this series of sermons because... Spiritual lethargy kills. Kills by degrees. Kills you. Kills your marriage. Kills your children. Kills. It just kills. You're not healthy. Now I just note there are many substitutes or covers for genuine spiritual maturity. Perhaps you're materially successful. You hold some position or rank. Maybe you have one of those just outstanding personalities. You've got great education. But even when it came to the Sadducees, who by all accounts allegedly knew their Bibles, citing chapters and verses, not literally, but they could find things in the Bible. They knew where neat stuff was, and I'm sure many of them could point out some very interesting things. Nevertheless, Jesus said to them, You are mistaken, not knowing the Scriptures, nor the power of God. Now, A diet of milk is often necessary, right? Certainly it's needed for those who are genuinely babies in Christ. 1 Corinthians 3, 1-2 And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it. Even now you're still not able. 1 Peter 2, 2 through 3, as newborn babes desire pure milk, the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Such a diet includes what's described as in, in Hebrews 5 as the first principles, the pablum of the Word of God. Hebrews 6, 1 through 3, therefore. Leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection or maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptism, of laying on of hands, of resurrection from the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. So in contrast to this, those, he says, who partake of solid food are of full age. Mature. Those who by reason of use, are you using this? Are you working out with this? Are you lifting this? By reason of use, he says, have had their senses, their spiritual senses, exercised to know, be able to know the difference between good and evil. You think you know the difference between good and evil, but the Bible says you don't. 
Not if you don't have this ultimate authority. This is the standard of good and evil. This is the straight line. All the other lines are crooked. This is the ruler. This is the straight edge. This is what we judge all the other things by. The word translated exercise is where we get our word gymnasium. This is where we go to the gym. We should take care to note what Paul means by maturity. Mature believers would be able to discuss the priesthood of the Lord. Those who are unskilled have to be taught the first principles. These first principles are identified, as we just read in these verses later, about uh, baptism, repentance, and so forth. Notice that certain ethical distinctions require maturity, experience, long practice in order to be able to make them. Ever see, ever see people doing something really foolish, really sinful, and then they'll say something like, well, I don't see anything wrong with it. That's the problem. You don't see anything wrong with it. That's why, that's why six-year-olds are not on their own. That's why they have parents, because there's lots of things that they don't see anything wrong with that. Put that down. Stop. Get off of that. We get on and on, right? Why are they up there? Why are they throwing that? Why are they about to do that thing? Why are they about to jump off the roof with that umbrella? I don't seem like it would work. Mary Poppins did it. Ethical distinctions of a certain kind are not equally obvious to everyone. And boy, do we live in an ethically confused and disoriented world. All people know that it's wrong to kill your grandmother for her money. But what does it take to see the sins of worldliness? Or sexual sins? Or flattery? Or subtle sins? Legalism arises when Christian communities try to have the fruit of discernment, that is, the ability to make fine distinctions without having the maturity that's necessary. So, how long have you been a Christian? Do any of these admonitions apply to you? What is your condition of maturity? Are you mature for your age, as they like to say? Do you need someone to go over the basics with you again? Are you diligently applying the basics and hunger for more? Is the Bible truly your ultimate authority? Further, if you are hungry for more, is the moral component of it, of the, of it at the center? Do you study the Bible in order to discern what's right and wrong? What's right and wrong in your family? What's right and wrong in how you conduct your business? What's right and wrong in your friendships and relationships? Or are you functioning as some kind of a doctrine computer? In Scripture, doctrine is practical and high doctrine is highly practical. Those who disparage doctrine for the sake of practice are impractical. And those who disparage practice for the sake of doctrine are unskilled in the word of righteousness. 
we never, ever take apart what God has joined together. And so, as your pastor, I am reminding you of who you are as followers of Jesus. Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. If we get this piece of the foundation right, if we stand on the ultimate authority of God's word, then we will continue to stand, for we shall have built our house upon the rock, upon the rock of ages. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for supplying all of our needs. You have given us your Son, the Holy Spirit, your Word, and your Church. We often fail to make use of these gifts and then wonder why we suffer. Help us, O Lord, in our frailty and stupidity to rise up and see clearly the riches of your provisions for us. May we be prepared for life's storms. And may we remain steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. Amen. First Peter chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass, the grass withers and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. The Word of God is all-sufficient for you and me. It created and sustains the world. It created and sustains us. It redeems us. It will resurrect us. It teaches, reproves, corrects, and instructs us. It equips us for every good work. Psalm 18, 30-32, As for God... His way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in Him. For who is God except the Lord, and who is a rock except our God? It is God who arms me with strength and makes my way perfect. And so we come now to the Lord's table to renew our covenant and to renew our pledge of loyalty to God and to his word. Amen. All your works praise you, O Lord, and your saints give thanks to you. We open our mouths to bless your holy name. We are especially grateful today for the kind providence you've shown us in times of delight and in times of trial. Indeed, you have worked all things together for our good in Christ. We gratefully receive your salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You have brought us, one by one, to participate in this covenant community of your saints, to live, love, and serve together. We thank you for all the faithful saints that have gone before us, 
for fathers and mothers, uncles and aunts, friends and neighbors, pastors and elders, as well as strangers, for all those who have adorned the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who have served and prayed, who have lived and proclaimed, who have sacrificed and died. For here we sit as the benefactors of your grace and your saints. Keep us, we pray, that we too might have the blessing of participation in the work of your kingdom, that the generation to come might know your works, the children who would be born, that they might arise and declare them to their children, that they might set their hope in God and not forget your works. Lord, you have made us a people before you. You've given us a name. You've given us a place to worship. You've given us a people to serve and love. You have fed us and built us up. You've given us friends and families. You have provided food and shelter. You have given us great cause to rejoice and celebrate in Christ. Bless now our feast and fellowship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen.